Hi, and welcome to Bootstrap, The Lighter Side, where entrepreneurs who have grown successful startups from the ground up share their inspiring stories. In each episode, you'll hear from accomplished founders about starting a business, managing a runway, and raising capital on their terms. I am Melissa Widner, the CEO of Lighter Capital, a leader in founder-friendly, non-dilutive funding. Visit lightercapital.com to learn more. On today's show, I'm talking to Dan Galancy, the co-founder and CEO of Atacama, one of Lighter Capital's new portfolio companies. Welcome, Dan. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start off with if you can give a brief description of Atacama. Sure. So we are a cybersecurity company based in New York City. We make right now a terrific encryption product that is targeted at enterprise customers. And we are soon to offer a browser security product targeted at MSPs, managed service providers. And those are companies that serve uh, the small and medium business space. And how did you get into this? Tell us the origin story. Well, it's a little bit circuitous. So you'll have to forgive a bit of a twisty, windy story here. I, I studied physics and electrical engineering and then came out of college and decided to do finance because, uh, well, there were a variety, variety of reasons. Um, I still, still though, an engineer at heart, really. O- always really an engineer at heart. Like, that's where I care. That's what I cared about. That's what I always found the most interesting. Um, did stuff in the financial world for a little while. Worked at a couple of hedge funds, um, mostly covering uh, kind of deep tech, semiconductor manufacturing equipment uh, and as an investor. And then in 2011, before it was cool, I discovered Bitcoin. Uh, sort of, you know, before the big explosion. And I got really enamored with it. It was this great combination of finance and tech. I uh, told a lot of people about it. Everyone thought I was crazy. I wasn't that crazy, but I don't know. Who knows? It's, it's still, you could still, you could say it's still early days. <laughs> Jury's still out, right? Right. Yeah. Jury's still out. Right. Jury's still out. Agreed. And then in 2013, uh, I was still at, you know, at a, at a hedge fund. And that was sort of when Bitcoin hit the mainstream media, not as a mainstream thing, but it was on CNN.com. It was sort of like, look at this oddity, right? It was, look at this weird thing. Now it's on CNN. I, at that point, I decided to leave the hedge fund space. I made a little, little bit of money, you know, enough to kind of carry myself along because I wanted to do something <laughs> in the Bitcoin space. I wasn't sure what. Uh, my boss at the time thought I was crazy, but I said, look, I got to go do this because I've always wanted to do something in the entrepreneurship world. And I kind of stumbled around for a little while and I worked on a bunch of different Bitcoin related projects. Ultimately, the, the company that uh, I founded we tried to create various institutional access vehicles for Bitcoin, kind of connecting the old school world of finance to Bitcoin. And then we actually worked on creating a Bitcoin ETF. We were one of the first ones. We you know, had insurance on the underlying Bitcoin against loss and theft. And then from there, again, we were too early. We we're just too early. From there, we started looking at stuff related to the tech, the underlying technology. You know, people talk about blockchain tech. So we looked at that for a little while and did, did a couple of potential projects there. That, it didn't really pan out. But then from there, <laughs> I told you it was circuitous. I got really interested in cryptography, right? So cryptography is the underpinning of Bitcoin uh, and that whole ecosystem. And I got really, in- I got really into it. And that is how we ended up developing the encryption software that we sell. 
So it went from there, it went from cryptography to the cryptography, the underlies encryption software that we sell cybersecurity, and then more general cybersecurity, which leads us to the product that we have now. So I kind of went through a lot of different phases and those phases combine two things. The first of those things is my own personal interest, things that I found fascinating. And then second, where we thought and think market demand would be. So tell us about the product that you have now and also the one you're bringing to market soon. Sure. So the encryption product we have right now uses something called distributed key management. And what that is, sort of think about an encryption key. I'm gonna I'm gonna make this as non-technical as possible because you don't know who's never know who's listening, right? Um, and technical folks will understand it anyway, right? Take an encryption key, you could think about that as sort of like a password, kind of. You could take that, let's say your password is the word password. Well, we could take that password and instead of you having memorized it, I can give the first two letters to you, Melissa, the second, so PA, the second two letters to Jeremy, SS, the third two letters to me, WO, and the fourth two letters to Caitlin, RD, right? And now all four of us have a piece of the password, piece of the key. And then we can reconstitute that by putting all those pieces together. That's a very simple, simplified way of putting it. The reality is that you don't have a, it's not just a password. You don't break it into pieces quite as quite that way. And you don't require necessarily all of the pieces to reassemble the key. So you could have a threshold where, for example, you have any three of the five pieces. You split the key into five pieces. And you use any three of those five, you know, A and B or B and C or A and D or A and E, right? I, I guess I was talking about two of the five in my, that example. Anyway, you get the idea, right? A, B, C or D, right? to reassemble the key. And that uses a type of math called threshold cryptography. And we use that to design a fairly intricate and quite powerful encryption system that will keep data secure, even under some of the worst possible scenarios. Uh, these are sort of the same types of algorithms that people that allegedly, I want to italicize that word, are used to store missile codes. Who are your ideal customers for this product? And who are your current, some of, you probably can't name your current customers, but what types of businesses? Interestingly, from a sector perspective, we are all over the map. You know, everything from, you know, financial services to healthcare, you know, all over the map. The buyer tends to be either the chief information security officer or one of that person's uh, subordinates, right? So someone who works for the chief information security officer or works in the information security department at the enterprise. And, you know, we do also, you know, uh, middle markets, right? So, you know, not just gargantuan enterprises, but some of this, you know, not SMB, not that small, but big, you know, a couple thousand people, right? Not 50, okay. right? Right. Yeah. You'll go down to mid-market. It's not Absolutely. all large enterprises. And we, I think we play fairly well there. And we have often been paired with data discovery and classification tools. So tools that will look at a company's data and say, oh, you have personally identifying information in these files. You have sensitive data in these files over here, all, all these different places. And then we end up being used as the tool to remediate those findings. And then you're launching a new product. We're super excited about that. And that's not for enterprise and middle market. That's really for the MSP space, the managed service provider space. There's a reason why we chose that space for this product. Uh, it's a browser security product. You know, if you think about 
the browser that you know most people use it's Chrome usually, right? Maybe it's people are using some Safari, Firefox, Edge. A lot of use Chrome. All of these browsers are really designed for consumer applications, and we use them at work. They're fundamental pieces of the work landscape. We use them all the time at work. That's how we use them, right? That creates all sorts of problems in terms of everything from data loss prevention, right? So that's the you know the potential exfiltration or, or theft, inadvertent or accidental of data, removal of data from the organization, to concerns about how to protect against phishing and malware and all sorts of stuff. And I'm not saying, you know, we're not, by no means are we saying that these sorts of protections against these problems don't exist from other sources. They do. But you get a ton of efficiencies if you assemble them into the browser directly, right? So it enables you to accomplish a variety of security goals more efficiently, more effectively at a lower cost and on a combined bundled basis. And that can create a lot of value for a managed service provider. They, what they really want to do is they want to reduce the number of tools they have. And they want to be as protective of their customers as they can be. Let's get back to the origin story, because a lot of people, most people you talk to have some idea for starting a company, but very few people actually, you know, act on it. So what was it, you know, about you? You left, I mean, hedge fund, that's a pretty cushy job, well-paid, fairly secure compared to being an entrepreneur where you're bootstrapping your company. You know, what was it that gave you that push to go do something that's pretty risky? You want the real answer, the unsanitized answer? Yeah, unsanitized. Absolutely. <laughs> I graduated from college. I mean, this is many years ago now. <laughs> many, many years ago. And I said to myself, I just want to make as much money as possible. That was my attitude. That was my attitude. I, yeah. said, I don't, uh, you know, I said, I don't really care about doing anything that, that, that fits my, quote, interests. Right? I just want to make a bunch of money so that I can do whatever I want. Yeah. It's kind of a very myopic view of a 22-year-old. And that's why I went into finance after graduating. Um, and the first thing I did was actually I worked in as a trader, a proprietary trader, and I didn't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think going through that journey and then getting deeper into finance, where I, I hit parts of it that I found interesting, very interesting. And I started following, you know, what different companies and how they work and all these different things. And I think by becoming someone who was involved in the, in the capital allocation process and looking at all these companies and developing a fascination for the idea of creating something, right. I think my mind, you know, my mind shifted and I said, I actually, I really want to create something. And then that sort of also appealed to the engineer part of me which always like to tinker and build things. Put all that together, and at some point, I can't tell you exactly when, but it was sometime in the first few years after I graduated from college, I said, actually, I, I want, I ultimately want to do something in the entrepreneur, in the entrepreneurship. Okay, so you knew that. Not, I mean, not when I was a little kid, not when I was, you know, not, you know, not when I was fresh out of college, right? But yeah. a little bit, a little ways after that, I did know that. And then, you know, sometime, sometime after that, I discovered Bitcoin. And I kind of put those things came together. I was like, well, here's this weird thing. And I want to do on something in the entrepreneurship world. Right. And that's what made me make the leap. I had, I had 
watched all these companies go up and down and do all these things. And I said, I would like to build one. Um, do you come from an entrepreneurial family? No. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, I come, my, my parents uh, were both lawyers. Neither of them practice anymore. Uh, I, my dad had his own had his own small practice for a little while, but not, so sure in a certain yeah. sense, but not so a little bit. You know, not, not really at scale, not quite in that way. So let's talk about uh, capital formation. And you decide to leave your job in hedge fund because you're really excited about this new thing called Bitcoin and want to do something there. How did you first fund the company, and how have you funded the company going forward? We're familiar with the lighter capital piece of it. You've become a lighter capital client recently, and we're thrilled about that. But but you've been around for a while. So tell us how you got from, from um, there to here. Sure. So we have actually funded the company in so many different ways. Some internal funding from founders, right? So we did you know, put our own money in. We also uh, got some money from the venture world, right? So from VCs, this was sort of earlier on. And then more recently, we actually did, we got some funding via equity crowdfunding, which is a fairly unique way of doing it. A recent advent in the United States, I mean, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't really do for many, many years in the past because of securities regulations. And those regulations changed, I believe it was 2008 with the Jobs Act. Even after that, they weren't, the regulations were not, were not instituted uh, for several years. And you know, the SEC eventually came, the securities regulators in the, US, in the United States, the SEC, they came out and said, okay, here's how we're going to institute these new regulations. And here's, if you want to take in money from the crowd to fund your company, here's how you have to do it. Here are the rules. And by the way, that's distinct from crowdfunding the way people crowdfund a product, which predates that. Yeah. And it's a important distinction. Yeah. And um, you know, Lighter's done over a thousand rounds of financing. And I think there are probably fewer than, you know, I can count on one hand companies in our portfolio that have gone down the equity crowdfunding path. So tell us more about that. Because usually, like like you said, when you think of whether it's equity crowdfunding or product crowdfunding, it's typically in the consumer space. So it's something that a lot of people can get their head around and understand where I, I would say, you know, what you're doing is a lot more esoteric and the, the average person is not going to necessarily understand it. So how did you decide to go down that path? And, and you were successful at it. So so tell us the, the process and would you recommend it to others? So I think we were very fortunate in terms of our success here. Most companies that try it are not successful and that's not because they're doing it. That's not because something wrong with the company, right? That's because equity crowdfunding is, is difficult. There are certain types of companies that are, I would say, well-suited for equity crowdfunding. So, for example, companies that have a following, right? So, um, before before we embarked on this equity crowdfunding journey, I actually I kind of put my old analyst hat back on, and I called like a dozen or maybe even more CEOs and C-suite folks who had done equity crowdfunding. Okay. I like found the filings, and I was like, okay, this person did it, this person did it. I called them, and I uh, cold emailed instead of calls. You'd be surprised how many people will say yes. Yeah. If you're asking for advice. And the conversations were fascinating. So for, it was a, a, a guy who ran a, a chain of uh, bars and restaurants. And they had followings of people who liked those bars and restaurants. Right. And they they that's how they got their investors. Right. So, you know, someone who goes to XYZ bar 
right? Really likes the place and they find out, oh, I can invest in this and they, and they do it, right? So there's a situation where there's some connection between the customer and the investor. The customer knows what the company is, right? This is not to say that the, that the, that the customer is or is not a sophisticated investor. There's nothing to do with that. It's just, it's a customer, right? And they like the brand. So they put in a couple of books. It can work. Uh, it can also work if you have, there are some companies where there's like a real like cult following around yeah. a CEO or not. that. Happens. I mean, that's not me. Right? You know, maybe if you're yeah. Elon Musk, right? He doesn't need to do that. Yeah. But, you know, people, companies that have a, a cult following, it works. That's the second category. Third category where it will work is if there's some kind of cult following around a product, right? So I, I saw a couple of, um, like one company, it does like it makes some kind of healthcare wearable. I don't know the nature of that. I don't remember, but people really love that thing. So like I have like a aura ring like for sleep. Yeah. Know, right? yeah. So, I mean, I love that company and I don't know. I don't think they've done crowdfunding, you know, equity crowdfunding. That's the type of thing where there's a lot of people who know that thing and like that thing. It's a product. Right. I don't know who the CEO is. They don't have any brick and mortar stores, but that's a cool thing that can do well. And then there are companies that do it based on advertising. They will advertise and live in daylights out of their offering. But what the reason I bring up these different pathways is to say that it will not work for every company because you sort of need a good hook, right? You sort of need a good hook. People have to find out about you and they have to believe in you. And it's, it's tough. So you've gone down the venture path. Yeah. And after after researching this market, you decided to that this would be a good path for you. And and how did you choose what platform? How much did you raise? And, and tell us just about the, the process in general. So ultimately we chose a platform called WeFunder. There are tons of different platforms out there with various different advantages and disadvantages. And there are all sorts of different ways in which you can do this, right? You can use, uh, well, not all sorts of, a handful of different ways in the US. For small rounds, you can use what's known as Reg CF. You can raise up to 5 million bucks in a year. Um, and then for larger rounds, uh, you can do something, you can raise under what's known as Regulation A. And I think you can raise up to 75 million bucks, but there's a, a much heavier duty filing requirement and co you know consistent reporting requirements afterwards that become a little bit more onerous for the company. So we chose CF. And then you can also raise under what's known as Reg D, which is what actually all venture rounds are done under that yeah. regulation. But there's a piece of that regulation that enables you to, under certain circumstances, do it in a crowdfunding-like format, under certain circumstances. So in terms of platforms, there are many different platforms. Each have their advantages and disadvantages. Ultimately, one of the reasons why we were quite pleased with WeFunder is they have very good customer service. And in this kind of newly emerging way of raising capital, customer service counts for a lot. Yeah. Because there are many unknowns and speed bumps that the issuer will encounter and the investors may encounter, right? Did I put in my social security number the right way? Who knows? Any number of things. Customer service counts for a lot. So we've been pleased with them on that front. So you go with WeFunder and uh, there's this notion that you go on a crowdfunding platform and you know, you're know you gonna get a lot of people funding you and then you're off to the races. Um, what I've seen more often and I'd like to find out how it worked for you is that you really have to bring the 
you're bringing the the entrepreneur, the company is bringing the investors to the platform, and it's just more a way of facilitating, you know, getting the investors on board. Was was that your case, or did you find a new a lot of new investors that were there because they're on the WeFunder platform? What you're saying is exactly right. So let me answer the second part of your question first. If you have a successful round on a platform like WeFunder, if you if you're already successful then perhaps certain pre-existing users of that platform will gravitate to your raise, mm-hmm. right? So if you have already, let's say you're doing a reg CF raise and you've raised 4 million to the 5 million bucks, then you'll stand out on a platform like WeFunder and you'll get some WeFunder users who want to put in, but not from dollars here. That's not going to happen. So you do need to bring the investors one way or the other. The ways that I described are ways of doing it you know, everything from advertising to uh, there are newsletters that investors subscribe to. We got featured in one of those that worked out nicely to, you know, obviously, if you have, like I said, if you have a cult product or a cult following or, you know, those things will do, but you have to bring the investors. You did a lot of the pre-marketing or oh, all the yeah, pre-marketing. All of it. Yeah. All of it. Not a lot of it. A hundred percent of it. hundred percent. So, so it begs the question, why not just, you know, instead of you're probably paying what a 7% fee five to 7% fee to, to raise on a platform. Why, why not just go to those people? You know, what was the benefit of the platform versus since you're bringing the investors, just going to the investors directly? That's a great question. And that goes to one of the things that I think is a little bit broken about the system. So all of these platforms charge fees, they range from, I'm not going to get the exact numbers right, two-ish percent to eight-ish percent. Don't expect magic on either and don't expect you know magical services or tech at two percent, and don't expect it at eight percent either. Yeah, right. Fees are negotiable to a degree. For Reg CF, you must use a platform. You are required by the SEC to use a platform. You cannot do it any other way. If they're not um, accredited investors, if they're not accredited. That's right. Right. Okay. So this was a way. Really, the 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 driver was to get. You know, smaller checks from people who aren't accredited investors. Yeah. I mean, you know, $100 checks at times. Yeah. But, you know, some much, much larger, you know, some yeah. five figures, six, and I think we even got a couple of six figure checks in there too. So, you know, an investor who isn't necessary, you know, they're not going to put their life saving into this thing. And we don't, you're not, they're not supposed to, that's not appropriate. They think something is interesting. They think it will work. Right. They put it in a couple hundred bucks, knowing they could, they could lose it all and knowing that, Obviously, the the management team is going to bust their behinds to try and derive, you know generate as much value for everybody as possible. But yeah, so in order to to access that segment of the market, you are required to use a platform under Reg CF. Under Reg A, I believe you actually can avoid using a platform, but you need you still need a broker dealer. So it gets there. Always have been these intermediaries as middlemen in the mix. I don't think that's healthy, but that's the way the system is right now set up. And we'll move on from this, but just how long did it take you from the time you decided to go down this path, put together the marketing materials and launch on the platform to, and how much did you actually raise through this crowdfunding process on WeFunder? Okay. So how long did it take? We probably researched it for, I think we had the idea for a year or so in advance. Okay. But from the time you were done with the research and decided, okay, we're going we're gonna to go Not that it. long. Once we had kind of done our research and figured out what we wanted to do, we also you know, realized how we would want to advertise if we were going to do that. And we also found out that we were going to, that someone was going to feature us in the newsletter, right? So we kind of knew 
like good things were around the corner. Then we just, you know, we launched it. But once you have a plan, you pull the trigger. Yeah. And how long on the platform? And did you did you raise what you set out to raise? Yes, we did. More than that. We actually raised five million bucks in five days. Um, wow. Wow. That's got to be one of the big successes on on their platform. Yeah, I still I'm still waiting for my like box of chocolates from these gifts. <laughs> my gift basket. No, because uh, then you know it's a it's, platforms make a lot of money, right? Who really wins the, the platforms? Just they're making the money on this thing, right? Because uh, their costs are their their marginal cost is de minimis, right? Right, right. Whether they're doing a fifty thousand dollar raise or a right. five million dollar raise, right. it's not yeah. zero. It's not zero. There is a marginal cost, but it's very very low. And then ultimately we raised more than 6.5 in that round. And then we actually recently offered our investors a warrant. That's raised, a, I don't, we haven't disclosed the totally yet, but that's also raised a bunch of money as well. Okay, great. Post doing the raise, what's the relationship like with the investors compared to you raised VC early in, in your company's life? How, how does it differ? Well, some investors you'll never hear from. Some investors will email you and ask you questions. Um, some of the questions will be really insightful, great questions. Some of the questions will be basic yeah. across the board. And that's fine. right? You know, that's what we'd expect. And we try to give update webinars every once in a while. It's not right now on a regular schedule um, because we don't necessarily have update. You know, we're a startup. I can't say, you know, it's not, we're not Procter & Gamble where we can give a quarterly update and have, you know, important news every quarter. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. We do periodic webinars and, you know, people tune in. They ask questions. We show them some slides about our progress. We, you know, we talk about what's what's happened. Uh, we think that's been good. Yeah. So tell us, you became a lighter capital customer recently. Tell us how that came about and why you went from VC funding, which I presume is, you know, a lot of, you're giving up a lot of equity and, you know, some control and to crowdfunding and now, you know, non-dilutive revenue-based financing. You might be the only, one of our only companies that's done all three. In fact, you could be our only one, which, golly is, golly. which is pretty I exciting. Know, I don't know what to say about, so I don't know what to say about yeah. that. Right. Um, so we found out about Lighter through another person who we know was intellectually pro- intellectual property based financing <laughs> another type of financing which we haven't yet done maybe we'll do it maybe we won't but that guy smart guy introduced me to one of the lighter capital folks Jamie Moy who she I mean she's just great so she she is our New York based investment director she's yeah, fantastic yeah she's great she's great she really walked walked me through the whole process and what became fairly clear early on was that you guys are quite different from a lot of these inbounds that I had received insofar as you really structure it in a sensible way and it's run in like a you know like a responsible manner um, and it's thoughtful, properly systematized, right? So you know, you know, at, at the end of the month, there's a reconciliation we do every month, and you guys have a whole system for it and it makes sense, and the tech kind of links up. And then dealing with Jamie was very was quite good. She's, you know, she really walked hand, you know, held our hands through the whole process. It worked out really well. You know, it's not diluted. <laughs> what more can you ask for? So we've been pleased. Well, with- that's good to hear. Yeah. We hear that story often, but it's never get tired of it. Yeah. 
And you know, obviously, as we grow our revenue base, we'll want to grow this because we're always, you know, better off. When I want to say always, <laughs> you're usually often better off with non-dilutive capital than with dilutive capital. So yeah. this this is a good source for us and a relationship that we that we like and we're pleased with. I I would agree with that. I after being a couple of decades in venture and being an entrepreneur myself that, you know, you should always take debt versus debt over equity. If it's, you're looking at the same amount of money and you can get both and it's not going to be onerous debt to service, or, you know, you're not getting a lot more from the equity, but um, well, we're getting close to time here, but you have such a great story and you've been at this for a while now. Any advice to, People in your shoes, you know, your shoes over a decade ago who are thinking, okay, I want to, I'm, I'm ready to take the plunge and I want to start a company. You know, what would you have done differently or what do you wish you had known then that you know now? What I'll say is this, if you're thinking about taking the plunge, take the plunge because it's an experience that I think is incredibly unique and powerful and you'll learn a huge amount and grow as a person by doing it. Just just the act of entering the world of entrepreneurship, just the act of starting your own company and being wholly responsible and 100% in on what you're doing is something that I think is it's profoundly educational. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, and 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 profoundly fulfilling. Profoundly fulfilling. Mm. It's also the right way to that. That's the right way to put it. It's profoundly fulfilling. Also, profoundly difficult. <laughs> that's okay. That, yeah. you know, you you're signing up for it. Get ready to get kicked in the face every day. Uh, but that you know, okay, you get stronger. In terms of, I, I can't give specific advice about do this or don't do that because everyone starts from a different place and knows different things before they enter. What I'll say is be prepared to learn a lot and enter it from a, from a place of humility uh, because it will humble you one way or the other. Right? If you're not going to enter it from a place of humility, uh, be prepared to be humbled by it. it. It is quite humbling, isn't it? I think especially people who come from um, large companies and where they're used to getting their phone calls returned <laughs> because right. of you know, the, the name on their business card. And when you're starting a company that, that can be very humbling. Yeah. It's humbling uh, every day. Coming from a hedge fund, yeah. you know, as an, as an analyst at some of these, you know, funds, I had, you know, I could call C-suite executives at large publicly traded companies. They'd take my call. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I thought I was some kind of big shot. Maybe I don't know what I thought, right. That's not the way it usually works. So, now you're trying to call the analyst to get them to take your call. Yeah, right? yeah. the other side, right? Yeah. But but I find you you become a better person when you humility is part of your life, right? I think that's 100% true. Um, and uh, my suspicion is that it has to be a consistent part of your life forever. Um, mm. No, but that's the sense that I get. I think all of the best experiences I've had in my life have, in one way or the other, been humbling. Right. Like the birth of my son was a humbling experience, <laughs> right? You know, like, you know, like all these things are very humbling. So, uh, and you I think that's how you, that you learn the most and how you end up finding the most fulfillment. That's my personal view. You know, it may not be the case for everybody. It's been the case for me. 
Thanks again to Dan Galancy. And to learn more about Atacama, you can visit atacama.com. That's A-T-A-K-A-M-A.com. Ready to fuel your future on your terms? Subscribe to Bootstrap the Lighter Side. You'll get ideas for growing your startup from other successful founders who grew their businesses without giving up equity or control. This podcast can be found on Apple and Google Podcasts or directly at lightercapital.com slash podcast. Until next time, keep your runways long and keep those lights on.